Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to continue our trip through the Gospel of Matthew. We've been away for, from it for a couple of weeks, but we're back in it this morning, and so we want to uh, take a little time to reorient ourselves with what we talked about last time. Last time we talked about Jesus, the devil, and blasphemy, <laughs> and uh, we're going to continue in that message uh, today found in verses 22 to 32. I just want to read those verses for your hearing so that you become reacquainted with the text. So Matthew chapter 12, you can follow along in your Bibles, beginning in verse 22. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Now, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons by, uh, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. But the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. Either in this age... Or in the age to come. Now we spent some time last time. There's a CD back there if you want to get the first half of the message. But we kind of established a little bit of information. And one thing that we realized as we studied through this portion and other portions of Scripture. The key passage here is found in verse 32 where he says, Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either now or in the age to come. So by the admission of Jesus Christ himself, in his own words, he says there's a sin that's unforgivable. There's a sin that's unforgivable. And it's to speak against the Holy Spirit. Now, we know that God, by his very nature, and we established this, and we're not going to spend a lot of whole, whole lot of time here, but we need to kind of remind ourselves that our God is a forgiving God. Psalm 86, verse 5 says, You, Lord, are good and ready or eager to forgive. It's in his nature to be forgiving. Psalm 103 says that he forgives all our iniquities. God is in the business of forgiving sin. That's what he's all about. That's the essence of the biblical message of the gospel. If there wasn't forgiveness, then we'd have no good news, right? There'd be nothing to go to God for if he would never forgive us. Man is a sinner. God forgives that sin. It doesn't matter how severe your sin is. God can still forgive it. I mean, that's a wonderful truth. And if you look throughout scriptures, you're going to find portions of scripture that deal with individuals who were idolaters and murderers and liars and cheaters and all sorts of things, drunkards and extortioners and criminals, murderers, all homosexuals, all kinds of people in the Bible, and they were all forgiven. They all have the potential to be forgiven because God is a forgiving God and there's no limit to his forgiveness. But We did establish this fact last time that there is no forgiveness at any time without meeting of a condition. There's a condition that has to be met. That condition is repentance. That condition is confession of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That condition is turning away from your sin to God. That's what repentance is. 
Repentance is a change of mind that causes you a change of action in your life. And so in the new covenant of the New Testament, we find that the condition is repentance, confession, and putting an act of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the reasons the Pharisees would not be forgiven, and the reason Jesus says that their sin is unforgivable, is because they wouldn't walk through that gate. They perceive themselves as beyond any need for repentance. They perceive themselves as better than anybody else. They perceive themselves as self-righteous. So when God comes along and says, no, you need to repent of your sin, they say, what sin? Look at us. Look at the robes we wear. Look at the religious religion that we lead. Look at all that we do. And so their own self-righteousness caused them to stumble. Um, We also established five things that the unpardonable sin is not. I don't know if you remember these, but the first one was it was the rejection of Christ. The unpardonable sin is not the rejection of Christ. If that were the case, none of us would be saved. Because at some point or another in our life, we've all rejected Christ. It's not the denial of Christ. You can don't look too, too far in the New Testament to find people that denied Christ, and yet they were forgiven. It's not even the denial of the deity of the Holy Spirit. That's not what the unforgivable sin is. It's not even the grieving of the Holy Spirit. Or once again, none of us could ever be saved. We probably grieve the Spirit on a daily basis in one way or another. And some people, well, I know what the unpardonable sin is. It's those who knew Christ and then they fall away. Well, that's impossible because once God saves you, He saves you completely. There's no way that anybody who is legitimately saved by the powerful hand of God could ever fall away into the pit of hell. Because if God says he's going to save somebody, he's going to give somebody everlasting life, well, guess what, beloved? It's everlasting. So it's none of those things. And last time we looked at this miracle that the Lord did, he, we saw the action that he did here in verse 22. They brought this demon-possessed guy to him, and it says that he was blind and mute, and he was probably even deaf. He probably couldn't hear either. That's just a common trait. And he was demon possessed as well. And it just simply said that he cast, he healed them. It says he healed them. So literally, he cast the demon out and he healed the person all in one, one just one move. No big charade, no big tent. Not a big escapade. Now there's people there. And it says the reaction of the people were they were amazed. It says in verse 24 or 23, it says the multitudes were amazed and they began to question, could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah is what they're saying. And the Pharisees, of course, they're not there. You know, they're kind of on the outskirts as they always were. And by the time we get to verse 24, Jesus had probably already gone back in the house with some folks. And the Pharisees hear the people out in the streets saying, do you see what this guy just did? He just healed this guy. Just boom, the guy's healed. Could he be the Messiah? And the Pharisees are going, oh, we can't let this go on. (laughs) So they begin to tell the people what they say in verse 24. Look at the accusation. They begin to say this, not to Jesus, but they begin to say it to the people because they're trying to sway the people away from Jesus. It says, when the Pharisees heard it, heard that the crowd was amazed by what he just did, and they were asking, could this be the son of David? When they heard that, they said this, this fellow, and that's a very derisive term, it, it means this, this guy, look at this guy, he's from Nazareth, who, who does he think he is? This fellow, that's the tone that they're using, does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Pretty strong charge. Pretty strong accusation against the Son of God. Look at his answer. We see the answer of Jesus 
in verse 25. But before we get there, I just, I just want to explain this verse here, 24, a little, a little more. Because when, he, when they say this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, I mean, to make it real simple, Beelzebub basically is another term in the Bible for Satan. That's why Jesus says in his answer, if I cast out you know, demons by Satan, he uses the word Satan. And he's, he's equating the two. And if you just break that, that word down a little bit, all right? See, the Pharisees are in a, in a hard place right here. They're, they're, they're dealing with a crowd that's overwhelmingly drawn to this man who's doing all these miracles. And you notice that their accusation wasn't, it didn't focus on, oh, no, no, he's using smoke and mirrors. Do you notice that? They didn't argue about the, the miracle. They didn't say anything about the miracle. They said, oh, yeah, he's, he's doing miracles. Which is kind of overwhelming to me. To think that they were literally seeing God perform miracles before them, and they were still rejecting. These are his enemies. See, I mean, if I was going to tear somebody down that way, I would go after the miracle. I would say, oh, well, look at what he's doing. This guy wasn't really, you know, blind, and he wasn't really mute. He's my neighbor. He's fine. This is all a show. But they couldn't do that. Why? Because it was a legitimate miracle. They literally saw something supernatural before their eyes. And so there was no way to argue that. I mean, a person that comes along and tries to argue that when you actually see, if if we had a person come up here on stage that didn't have a leg, and I said, you know what? I'm going to heal this guy. And I touched him and I healed him. And all of a sudden you saw his leg grow back. And he went running out of here, telling everybody, praise God. I mean, well, that's, that's a real miracle. You could literally grab that guy and say, let me see that leg, man. That's amazing. I just saw it grow out of your body. I mean, that would be incredible. And if you inspected it and it was for real, you'd be a fool to say, well, no, no, no. Something's wrong. God can't do that. God could do that if he wanted to do that. He if he's a person to do that. That's where all the faith healers got it all wrong today. God heals today. I wouldn't say it's necessarily the norm, but he can do it. If it's his will, he doesn't have to use a guy. He doesn't have to use a lady, somebody on stage, bilking you for all your money. doesn't have to do it that way. And so here we see the testimony of the enemies of Christ saying, wow, this is a legitimate miracle. He was doing things that were beyond human capacity. And when you see that, you can't come along and, and look at Jesus Christ and say, well, you know, yeah, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe he was a good man. <laughs> or I believe that, you know, he did a lot of good things. He was a nice guy. Oh, he was a tremendous teacher. See, that's not allowed. You can't draw that conclusion. Even his enemies didn't draw that conclusion. They stepped back and they said, wow, something just happened here that was supernatural. What are we going to do about this? How are we going to explain this? All these people are drawn to Christ because of all these supernatural deeds that he's doing. And we've seen them with our own eyes. We know they're real. How are we going to explain this? You have to conclude that he was a supernatural person. He's a supernatural being. And so once you conclude that he was a supernatural being, the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're faced with another decision. Do you think that his supernatural powers come from God? Or do they come from Satan? Because there's only two choices. Do you understand? There's only God and Satan. That's it. 
As far as supernatural powers, that's all the Bible speaks of. So Christ has to be either empowered by God or by Satan. Because what he just did was definitely something supernatural. Now, the Pharisees are not going to look at the deeds of Christ because they felt threatened to him, by him. And they, weren't, they weren't willing to yield up their control and their power to him. They felt very threatened by him. The whole religious establishment felt threatened by Christ. And so they weren't going to sit back and say, oh yeah, that, that miracle he just did, he did it by the power of God. That wasn't an option for them. They painted themselves in a corner. Do you see this? They only had one alternative. I mean, you can see them. You know, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? I don't know. All these people are going to Christ, you know, because of these miracles. I got an idea. Let's say he does it by the power of Satan. That's the only choice we have. And so the Pharisees become literally some of the greatest defenders, without even knowing it, of the supernatural character of God's Son, Jesus Christ. They have to defend the fact that he is supernatural. That he's not just some normal Joe walking around with a bunch of people behind him. So they make up this accusation. Yeah, what you saw was true, but you know what? He casts out demons. They don't argue that. They've never seen anything like it. But then they say, but he does it by the power of Beelzebub. (laughs) That's it. That word, Beelzebub, it's, it's a word originally for the name of a Philistine god. Beel comes from Baal. You've heard of Baal worship in the Old Testament. A horrible uh, religion in the Old Testament, a pagan religion. And so, it's just another ancient word for the, the word Lord. Baal means Lord. And Zebub or, or, or Zebul, whichever way you want to look at it, is best translated flies so it's lord of the flies sounds familiar doesn't it so we go all the way back to the lord of the flies and the worship of this god of the flies whether you believe it or not and there's actually you can go in and you can study this word even more and and depending on how you spell the latter half of that word that z-e-b-u-b zebub if you say zebub it means flies if you say zebul B-U-L, it means dung. Now, guess what you find around dung? Flies, right? I mean, that's just natural. So you can kind of see how this all comes together. And so to be the prince of the demons, or Beelzebub, is simply using one of the titles of Satan. Jesus recognizes that because in his answer, in verse uh, 25 says, we'll get to his answer, but verse 25 says, but Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them. That's interesting in and of itself, that Jesus knew their thoughts. In other words, it implies that, like I said, he already went in the house. He healed the guy out in the street, probably. Everybody's around. The Pharisees are on the outskirts. Everybody saw it. They couldn't. They said, wow, this is a supernatural thing. And then, after he went in the house, the Pharisees started looking around, and the people started saying, hey, is this the son of God? Is this the son of David? Is, could this be the Messiah? And the Pharisees started spreading a rumor, no, 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 no. What you saw was true, but it's not by the power of God, it's by the power of Satan. And he's out of earshot of Jesus. Jesus is in the house already, apparently, because it says that he, he read their mind. He says he knew their thoughts. That's a scary thought, isn't it? That Jesus can read your mind. That Jesus knows what's going on in that brain of yours. Even right now as you sit here listening to the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Jesus knows what you're thinking about, beloved. Where are we going for lunch? When's this guy going to shut up? How long is he going to go today? Jesus knows it all. You don't have to say anything. And he also knows 
our thoughts. He knows our actions. He knows everything about us. If we could just understand that truth, I think it would transform the way we live our Christian life. I know it would mine. I mean, you know, we're, we're never always the same person all the time. I'm not the same person when I'm home, you know, watching the Super Bowl with my feet kicked up on the couch. Nobody else is there. Samuel was there with me. We're just watching the, the ball game. Okay? I'm a little different when I'm here standing in front of people. That's just normal. It's not an act or anything, but it's just normal. I'm a little more relaxed at home. And so, when we begin to realize in our Christian life that Christ sees it all, you can't go anywhere to hide from him what you do in your secret little place, your little pet sin that maybe you have that you think nobody else knows about, nobody he knows. And he sees it clearly. We need to remind ourselves of that constantly. So here, he reads their mind, he knew their thoughts, and then he said to them, which is kind of an interesting statement because they didn't come to him he went to them he yelled out the house to them because he knew what they were thinking he knew what they were telling the people and so they're saying here that satan is in this guy it's not the power of god he's he's definitely casting out demons he's definitely healing people he's definitely doing something that's supernatural the only way we can explain it it's not from god it's from satan that was their answer that was their accusation. And they have already said this several times. In John 8, they said that, that demons are in him. In, in Matthew 10, remember, they said that he was the, the devil, basically, in person. And now they're saying the devil's in him. The devil's empowering him. See, one way or another, they've got to get the focus off God and on Satan, and that's where he gets his power. That's what they're trying to do. interesting that whether they said he was demon-possessed or the devil incarnate or the devil's in him, whichever, whichever one you want to pick, they have to recognize that there's something supernatural about this guy. And that leaves their only two options, God and Satan. And because those are the only two supernatural kingdoms that exist, they opt for Satan because they feel that that would play out better for them politically with their religious followers. Now, by their own argument, just stop and think this through. By their own argument, if they're wrong about Satan, what option does that leave us? There's only one. That what he does, he does because he's empowered by God. Now, that kind of sets this up, but then Jesus, just in his ingenious way, he deals with this argument, this accusation, and he gives them an answer, and he, he really, he just kind of destroys the whole argument right in front of them. And they're not going to confront him. They're, they're kind of afraid of him at this point because they know that there's something supernatural going on. And so they're not about to come in the house and say, hey, what you're doing, you're doing by the power of Satan, pal. We're here to confront you. Now, they're a bunch of chickens. Little chicken littles running out there in the crowd telling everybody, oh, what he's doing, he's doing by the power of Satan. Well, he knows exactly what they're saying, and so he calls out to them from the house. Can you imagine this? He's confronted. of. says, Jesus knew their thoughts, verse 25, and he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. Mark 3 tells us that they were outside the house. And so he yells to them through the crowd and everything. And he says, states basically a very, very common sense, basic, down-to-earth truth. And in a way, it's almost revealing the compassionate heart that Christ has for these accusers of his. I mean, he could have just not said anything. Think about it. He could have just kind of brushed it off and just kind of went on his way. 
But I think it was out of his heart of compassion for these religious leaders to say, you know, I'm going to give these guys one more chance. (laughs) I'm going to give them one more chance to repent and acknowledge who I am for real. Because they already recognize that I'm somebody supernatural. They just have to change their thoughts on who I'm empowered by. So as we look at this answer, first of all, I want you to see that the answer that they that 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 he gives them about their accusation, he says, first of all, their accusation is unfounded. The accusation that they just said is unfounded. That he does these things by the power of Satan or Beelzebub. And the reason it's unfounded, it's unreasonable, it's illogical, is look at what he says in verse 25. He says, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. In other words, a kingdom or a house or a city that's divided, eventually it's going to fall. It's going to collapse. It's not going to work out. I mean, you don't have to be the brightest bulb on the block to figure that one out. I mean, look at our own country. When something happens that's a, you know, a major deal, everybody comes together and there's unity and boy, everybody's patriotic and the country makes some progress. But then kind of a passiveness sets in and just lackadaisical attitude and they begin to bicker against each other. And all of a sudden you have this big divide in the country. Same thing in in households, same thing in a city, whatever it is, whatever organization you're talking about, if you have infighting within the organization, it's going to be hard for that kingdom not to be divided. It will be divided. And when it's divided, it's not going to stand. That's why it was so important for our country early on when the Civil War cropped up to make sure that we resolve these things. Because the leaders knew that a divided nation would not stand. I mean, that's very simple. That's very basic. And at this point, the Pharisees are probably, what did he? Oh, he said that a kingdom divided against itself will not stand. Well, duh. Yeah, we know that, pal. They're hearing him from inside the house. They're outside the house. They're hearing this statement and they're going, well, yeah, who wouldn't know that? Tell us something we don't know. And then he quickly gives the application in verse 26. He says, if Satan casts out Satan, guess what? He is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? See, he painted them, or they painted themselves in a corner, and now he's just showing them, your your argument is so ridiculous. You're, You're not arguing the fact that I did something supernatural. You're saying, oh yeah, You did something supernatural, but you're doing it by the power of Satan. You cast out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus simply points out to them, look, a kingdom divided against itself, it's not going to stand. Do you think Satan is so stupid that he's going to go around and empower me to cast out demons out of other people? That would be silly. That'd be ridiculous. And when he said, what is in verse 25, they nodded and they agreed. And so he says, so if Satan is casting out Satan, then his kingdom is divided against us. How is it going to survive? Satan's not that stupid. I mean, that wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. We have to give Satan a little bit of credit here. Do you understand that outside the Trinity, beloved... Outside the Trinity, he's the most intelligent being in existence. That's Satan. Satan's not some guy that just fell off the pumpkin truck. He's very deceptive. He's down to a science. He knows exactly what he's doing. And what he's Asking is, do you think Satan's going to go around and be so stupid as to commit kind of suicide? I mean, he's going to go around casting demons out of other people himself? That doesn't make any sense. He's going to defeat his own purpose 
How's his kingdom going to stand? See, he is setting up a plan. He's, Satan is, is trying to, he's the ruler of this, this age that we live in, the prince of the power of the air. And so his plan is, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to go possess a bunch of people, and then I'm going to have a bunch of um, demon-possessed people go uh, cast out those demons of the people who are possessed. I mean, this is ridiculous. And they knew it. They knew it. So Jesus did deeds that could only be explained as supernatural. And even his critics said that. They only had two choices. Either he did it by the power of Satan or he did it by the power of God. They chose to argue he did it by the power of Satan. And Jesus simply says, you know what, that's ridiculous. Your your argument, is, is your accusation is totally ridiculous. Well, what's the alternative that's left? See, by their own stupidity... The Pharisees are forced into the very obvious truth that what he does, he does by the power of God. I mean, he put them in a corner with their own words. Jesus did this all the time with these guys. Satan is not going to go around and try to destroy his own work when he has Jesus Christ out there pretty much destroying his work for him. That's a majority of Jesus' ministry was. He was casting out demons. He was healing people. All these things. And if he was doing that by the power of Satan, if Jesus was, then Satan would be destroying his own kingdom. And that doesn't add up. Now, I don't believe that, that Satan is going to go about casting out Satan. But I want to say this. Don't be surprised sometimes when you see certain things and you look at how Satan operates that it's inconsistent. See, Satan is not going to operate in a consistent fashion. He's not even going to operate in a logical fashion sometimes. Because if you think of Satan, what you should think of is total evil. That's what Satan is. He's total, utter evil. And wherever there's evil, there's chaos. Because that's what evil is. Evil is chaos. So within his domain, there's going to be chaos. So you're going to look at the kingdom of Satan and you're going to go, Whoa, what is going on over there? Some of the things that you see going on, it's not going to make sense. It's not going to make logical sense. Some people ask, well, what about these people that have... You know, these people come forward and they say they're possessed and they'll do an exorcism on them or in the Catholic Church sometimes they perform exorcisms. I mean, my own personal belief, I don't think they're real. I don't think they're real. I think it's a charade by the deceiver himself to get people off message, to get people off track. You see that even in the Protestant movement today. You have people today that write books and books on demonic power. How to deal with demonic power in your life. How to cast this demon out. How to bind this demon. How to do all these things. There's whole workshops on this stuff. I don't think God wants us to be focused on that stuff, to be honest with you. And so sometimes we may see something even within the realms of Christianity, and we may look at that and go, wow, that, that's weird. Well, Satan may be using that as a ploy. He may just be dealing with a bunch of uncooperative demons who are trying to do something maybe he doesn't want them to do because the one thing you have to understand about Satan, he's not God. He's not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. He can't control everything. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. And he's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at the same time. I mean, he can get around pretty quick from what we understand from Scripture, but he can't be two places at once. So to say that, well, he's all mixed up and there's some chaos there, that's one thing. Because you're going to see some chaotic behavior within the domain of Satan. But to say that he just goes around on a daily basis casting himself out, I don't think it's that chaotic. 
He's not going to do something like that on a regular basis. So when you stop and you think of, of Satan and you think of all this power that he has, what, what, what their argument basically concludes is, this is, this is a ridiculous argument. It's a ridiculous accusation. Why would Satan so go around casting himself out? That doesn't make any sense. So it's absurd. Unfounded. Secondly, he shows that it was a biased argument. He shows that it was a biased argument. He says, not only is your argument, first of all, unfounded, it's just ridiculous when you stop and you think about it. It doesn't make any sense. Secondly, it's unbiased. Look at verse 27. He says, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, so he gives them that. If I do do this, say I do cast out demons by Satan's power. Let me ask you a question. By whom do your sons cast them out? Well, who's he talking about here? Who, who are their sons? Well, just like in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, a lot of times we, we read, such as in, in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 3, it talks about the sons of the prophets. Well, sometimes they weren't literally their bloodline sons. Sometimes they were what we would call today as disciples. And so you would have people in the Old Testament who would sit at the feet of the prophets and they would learn and they were called the sons of the prophets. Well, in the New Testament, you had people that would come along and they would sit at the feet of the Pharisees and they would look up to them and they would learn everything about their legalism and their religion and all this stuff. And they were called the sons of the Pharisees. They weren't literally their sons. They were the sons or the disciples of the Pharisees. And so among those groups of the sons of the Pharisees, you had certain ones who were involved in performing exorcisms, performing the ability to, trying to cast out demons. They were going around and they were trying to do all these strange hocus-pocus kind of things, saying that they were casting out demons. If you, historically, you can look through some of the writings of, of Josephus. He talks about this even over in Acts 19. It talks about this. And you see that basically the, the group in, uh, in, in Acts 19, they were, they were miserably uh, deficient in their attempt to cast out these demonic powers. They were unsuccessful. See, they looked at Christ and they said, hey, you know, look at, look at what he does. And uh, it, it says there in verse... Um, look at verse 11, Acts 19. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and diseases left him and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant, what? Jewish exorcists, verse 13, took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exercise you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of uh, Shiva, goes on there, the Jewish priest who did so. And the evil spirit, look at what he says in verse 15. The evil spirit answers these Jewish exorcists who were just using the name of Jesus because they thought it was some hocus-pocus kind of name. Here's what the demon said back. The evil spirit said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? (laughs) Hello. It says, then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. So you had people, even back in the, the early church, who thought, well, we'll just kind of use this name of Jesus. Kind of like it's some kind of a magical little name. It doesn't work that way. They didn't know who Jesus was. They were just going to use his name. They thought somehow that there was power just in saying the name of Jesus. That's why sometimes when people say, well, you know, you just got to ask in the name of Jesus. Well, what does that mean? I want a new Cadillac in the name of Jesus. 
Is that right? I don't think so. When you ask for something in the name of Jesus, you're saying, you know what? I'm asking for this in His will. I'm asking for it in His name. I'm asking for it as if He was asking for it. And you have to be sincere about it. You can't just ask for stuff and then tag on Jesus' name at the end. So many times you hear that in prayer meetings. I mean, sometimes, and I don't want to belittle this, but sometimes we have to understand that the name of Jesus isn't just something you just throw around. That there's some weight behind it. It has meaning. But if you just think that, okay, uh, you know, bless this food for these, I guess, in Jesus' name, amen. And you just got to say, in Jesus' name, I name amen at the end of every prayer just to say it. And it's, you don't even know what you're saying. It's probably better you don't even say it. Because it's just a habit. But when you understand you're praying in Jesus' name, you're praying the will of God in Jesus' name, whatever it may be. See, they thought the name of Jesus was just something they could throw around. Create a little hocus pocus. Well, it didn't work. The demon beat him up, chewed him up, spit him out. They went home, probably crying in their soup. And what went on? See, the activity is the same on the surface, it seems. And what Jesus is pointing out to the Pharisees in Matthew 12 is that, you know what? Your sons do the same stuff. Your sons supposedly go out there and cast out demons. And so he wants the Pharisees to go to their sons, their disciples, and say, you know what? You ask them. If they're doing the same thing I'm doing, ask them, how do they get the power to do what they do? They're not going to come back and say, oh, yeah, they said uh, they do it by the power of Satan, too. They're not going to say that. They're going to say, oh, we do it by the power of God. Even though it's not even legitimate, they're going to say they do it by the power of God. They would never say they do it by the power of Satan. And so he's pointing out to them, he's, your, your, your accusation is not only unfounded, it's biased against me. Your sons are doing the exact same thing that I'm doing on the surface. They're not doing it for real, but it looks like it. And so why would you say they do it by the power of God and I do it by the power of Satan? It shows your own bias. And you know what? That's, that's basically what it comes down to when it comes down to the heart of the matter when you're dealing with Jesus Christ. Do you understand that people do not reject Jesus Christ because of lack of evidence? They don't reject Christ because of lack of evidence that he's God. They reject Christ because they're biased against him. The Bible says that very clearly. They don't want the intimidation that Christ brings into their sinful life. You know why? Because the Bible says very clearly that men love what? Darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So when it comes down to rejecting Christ... People reject Christ because they, they don't want to submit to his lordship. They don't want to submit to who he is. They don't need more evidence for the most part. In their own bias here, instead of being open to receive him, they saw all the miracles that Christ did. They didn't argue that. Instead of receiving him for who he was, the son of God, they pushed him away. They had to make up some absurd and, and, and biased argument, accusation. And that's why he even takes it further. He says, hey, why don't you let your own sons be the judges? Why don't you go ask them a question? You know, sometimes I think in our own Christian lives, we're the same way. We know the truth. We understand what the Word of God says. We understand it pretty basically. And yet we go out and we do the opposite of what the truth tells us to do. It's called sin. We all do it in some form or another. But see, the key is, is, is when you do that sin, when, when you're, you're, you're involved in sinful behavior, what is your attitude about it? Are you looking at it and going, well, 
I'd probably get away with this a little longer. Or do you understand that that sin grieves the heart of God? Do you understand that God wants nothing more than you to get away from that sin? To confess it. That's why he says that he's faithful and just. If you come and you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He desires that. But even as Christians, sometimes we get hung up on this sin and we know we're doing the wrong thing. But so then what do we do? We build up little barriers all around us and we isolate ourselves from any kind of truth because we don't like to hear truth. And when we do hear truth, wow, what are they saying about me? We get all bitter. Very clear. We need to stop and say, wait a minute. Is my heart right with God? Because if it's not, I better get it right. Because whenever you hear truth and you don't embrace it, you don't welcome it, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. Because that truth is pushing a button in your life, in your walk, and you need to stop and reevaluate where you're at. And then lastly, their, their accusation, he points out, it's not only unfounded, unbiased, but it's stubborn. They, they denied the truth. I mean, this is kind of the, the, the climax of this conversation he's having with them. Not only were their accusations unfounded and biased, but they literally denied the truth. In verse 28, it says, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, look at what he says, Surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. <laughs> what a powerful statement. See, the truth is, is that he doesn't cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub. The truth is, and they're being faced with that right now, is that the power within Christ was the Spirit of God himself. It had to be. And when you stop and you think, when Christ came and he came to this earth and he was... Born of a little baby in a manger, put on a human body. He came as a servant. He came as a servant. And when he came as a servant, Christ was stripped of the use of his own prerogatives. The Bible clearly points this out. It wasn't his plan. Whose plan was he to follow? He was to follow who? The Father's plan. Jesus couldn't just go out and do whatever Jesus wanted to do. He was under the Father. And not only that, but Jesus just didn't go out and do whatever he wanted to do just because, you know, "Ah, I think I'll go turn some water into wine. The Bible very clearly, time and time again, says that he was empowered, not by his own power, but by whose power? By the Spirit of God. And so the Spirit was doing these works, even this healing here, the Spirit of God was doing this through Christ. It's very important you understand that. That everything Christ did, He did it by the Spirit's power. Because next week when we look at this unpardonable sin, and and what that's all about, if you don't understand that Christ was empowered by the Spirit to do everything He did, You're going to miss the point. He says, if I have this by the power of the Spirit of God, by the time you get to verse 28 in the conversation, that's the only alternative. That's why he says that in verse 28. What I do, I do by the Spirit of God. If that's the case. It's almost like you could say that since I'm doing what I'm doing by the Spirit of God. The alternative that he does it by the power of Satan, he's already dismantled that argument at this point in time. It's ridiculous that he would do it by the power of Satan. It's absurd. It's, you know, I mean, the, the whole thing, he points that out to him very clearly. So he says, but if I... Cast out demons by the Spirit of God. Surely, look at what he says, the kingdom of God has come upon you. What does he mean by that? 
See, the kingdom, get this, the kingdom is wherever the king is. You understand that? The kingdom is wherever the king happens to be. And he's saying, you know what? The kingdom has come upon you. And hello, yes, I am the king. That's the statement he's very clearly making to them. That puts them in a very, very, very serious position. Because they're faced face to face with the kingdom of God and the king of kings himself. And yet, you know what? These silly Pharisees were so far away, they couldn't even see it in their hearts. Remember the cities that it talked about earlier in Matthew, Chorazun and Bethsaida and and Capernaum, those cities that were indifferent when we talked about that because they had all these miracles done in their midst and they just kind of like, ah, whatever. Well, the Pharisees aren't indifferent. They're literally blasphemous. They get the whole picture. They understand that there is a kingdom future, that there's a millennial kingdom, that there's a, a kingdom future even beyond that. In the eternal kingdom where there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. But see, they also understood the kingdom is where the king is. And so when he made that statement to them, it was a very serious time for them to make a decision. He's saying to them, I am the king. And there's only one alternative. If I am the king, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Won't you please recognize that? He's giving them another chance. I mean, he, he's demonstrated this over and over in this gospel. He's healed the sick. He's cleansed the leper. He's freed the demonized. He's raised the dead. He's pardoned sinners. He preached the truth. He unmasked hypocrites. He did all this. He did, he did everything in Matthew here to explain who he was, to demonstrate that he was the King of kings and Lord of lords. And then in verse 29, look at what he says. He just gives him another illustration, another chance. He says, you know, kind of let me, let me explain it to you this way, okay? If you, if you don't get it yet, let me explain it to you this way. Or how... Can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. Okay, that's kind of like out of the blue there, Jesus. What are you talking about? Have you ever had your house robbed? Have you ever had somebody break in your house and steal stuff from you? It doesn't feel good. We had somebody rip off the church several years ago. It didn't feel good. And I remember for nights after that, midnight, I'd be, I gotta go down and check on the church. <laughs> Coming down there, check everything. Everything's still here, okay. Two o'clock, I gotta go down and check on the church. <laughs> Why? Because I thought maybe if I was there, they wouldn't rob it. Because it's hard to rob a house when somebody's sitting there. You don't just walk into a house if you're going to rob the house. Hey, hey, Joe, how you doing on your, your lazy boy there? Yeah, can I have a couple vases? And let me take you a couple stereos. And, oh, yeah, no problem. Go ahead. You know, somebody who's having their house robbed, what happens? You get adrenaline, right? You start to get supernatural strength sometimes. I mean, it's like when you hear people in accidents and whatever, and they get out of the car, and the little baby's under the car, and they supernaturally just flip the car over because their adrenaline is just rushing through their body. They become super strong. So if you're going to bust into somebody's house, what Jesus is saying, you can't just kind of walk around while the person's there and do whatever you want. You have to first, what's he say? Bind the strong man. If you're going to go in and take over somebody's house, you better make sure either they're not home. If they are home, you have to take care of them. That's why people get always tied up. You know, when their house is robbed, they tie them up, put duct tape over and throw them in the closet, and then they rip them off. What he's saying here is the kingdom of God is overpowering the kingdom of Satan. That's what he's pointing out to them. He's saying, I've demonstrated my power over the kingdom of Satan. 
healed people. I've cast out demons. I've done this time and time again. You've seen it. How else would that happen if I didn't have the power to first go in and bind the strong man? Tie him up. Deal with him. I mean, it's very clear the Pharisees understood what Jesus was saying to them. If you're going to rob a house and the house is owned by a strong man, you better tie him up first. Sounds pretty simplistic to me. And he's saying, I've, I've demonstrated that to you folks. I've demonstrated it time and time again. I've gone into Satan's domain and I've tied him up. I've taken care of him. I've thrown out his demons. I've delivered men and women from their captive. All this stuff. Haven't I showed you that I can spoil his house whenever I want? Because I am God. He is not. I am more powerful than him. And when I choose to do so, I can bind him just like that. And if I can bind him just like that, then guess what? I'm greater than he is. I mean, they knew in their theology in Israel that Lucifer was an anointed cherubim. They knew that the only one higher than Lucifer was God himself. They understood that. I mean, there's only one person who can bind the devil. Do you understand this? There's only one person. You want to know who that is? Read Revelation 20. And find out who it is. It's at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. And the Lord himself binds Satan for a thousand years. I mean, you hear people all the time, hey, I'm going to bind Satan. What? You're going to do what? Have you lost your mind? You hear this all the time in a lot of the, the hyper charismatic movements. You know, we're going to, yeah, we, we're going to pray that Satan will be bound for this service. My question has always been the same to these people. Okay, so you bound Satan. Oh, yeah, yeah, we prayed and, and now he's bound. Who unbinds him? So at the end of your service, you say, okay, now we unbind you, Satan, go do it. We're going to bind you again next week. I mean, what do you do? This is ridiculous thinking. It's, it's ridiculous theology that's crept into the church. And you got a demon under every rock. Demon of food, demon of this, demon of that. Oh, you got this, you got this. Oh, spirit of this, spirit of that. I mean, it's crazy. Does the supernatural realm exist? Yes. Is it a very powerful realm? Yes. But I thank God that in His Word He tells us, you know what? He's perfectly able to take care of that. You're not strong enough to bind Satan. But Christ is. That's the essence of Colossians 1.13. It says that Christ has come to deliver men Deliver men from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. See, Christ is still in the business of spoiling Satan's domain. He still does it. Every time somebody comes to Christ, when they put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, guess what? Christ wins, Satan loses. Every time that happens, Christ enters Satan's house, ties him up, and steals whatever he wants. We were all Satan's property. John 8 points that out. That we were sons of our father the devil. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we belong to him. And we're ruled by the prince of the power of the air. And it says that he took us out of his hand. And delivered us. We all were there. Jesus had already demonstrated his power over Satan in Matthew 4, the temptation. Over and over and over again. And so we need to remind ourselves that the death blow to Satan was struck at the cross. Where Jesus destroyed him, who had the power of death 
And even, he says, the devil. He destroyed the devil in Hebrews 2, it says that, through the cross. I mean, Satan is still running around. Don't get me wrong. He's still got his little minions out there doing his work. But his power is limited. His doom is sealed and his time is short. Yeah, yay, amen. I mean, you know, we need to get a little bit of understanding here. And so Jesus simply is saying, you know what? I'm the king and I've proved it time and time again by my ability to control Satan's domain. And if I'm the king, then the kingdom is here. What does that mean? It means that it's available. It's still available. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you you haven't put your faith, your trust in Christ as of yet. What are you waiting for? I I don't understand it. I really don't. I mean, all you got to do is turn to the person on your right or turn on your left and say, you know, if you come to Christ, oh yeah, well, what has he done for you? And listen to their testimony. Time and time again, you'll hear people tell you what Christ has done for them. How he's turned their life around. How he's forgiven them. How he's delivered them. That's what he says at the last verse there. Verse 30. He says, He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. In other words, you know what? There's no middle ground. Either you recognize who Christ is. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. And you... Resign your life to serving him. Or you're against him. You can't just pull back and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I kind of like Jesus. And I think he's a good teacher. And, you know, I do the church thing and this kind of... No, it's either all or nothing. Jesus says that time and time again. That's not a message we like to hear, but that's the truth. Well, as we close quickly, I just want you to understand, if you're in that uncommitted group, if you have yet to put your faith or trust in Christ, I just want you to understand this morning that you're not the only one. There's, there's other people that are probably sitting in this building that have that, that you're in the same place. They're uncommitted. They haven't committed their life to Christ. Maybe you need to ponder that truth a little more. I don't know. But I want to share secondly with you that you can't stay on the fence indefinitely. Either, the Bible said here this morning, either you're for him or you're against him. It's black and white. I mean, it's either yes or no. I mean, you may have, thirdly, some honest questions that need to be resolved. My message to you is, you know what? Get to work. Don't put it off. If you've got questions, go to the resources and find them. I mean, you, you can find a ton of stuff. You can ask people. You can find all the information you want, if that's the excuse. Maybe you just simply don't know what to do. Oh, yeah, I want to commit my life to Christ. I don't know how. Well, you're in a good spot. Because it's simply turning to God and opening your heart, your life to Him, and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the prayer He will answer when it's prayed from a sincere heart. And you know what? He will save you. Just like He healed this man in Matthew 12, He will save you just like that. And all the burden of sin, all the guilt, everything that's been weighing you down all of your life will be gone. Because you've laid it at the cross. I pray you'll consider these words this morning. Father, we ask this morning, as we search our own hearts, Lord, we pray that if there's any area of consideration that we need to look at in our own lives regarding Christ, I pray that you would bring that to light. Lord, if there's some here who have yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, who have yet to confess Jesus as the Lord, to open their hearts to him, we pray that right now, God, that you would draw them to yourself. Lord, we, we see very clearly that there's no neutrality here. You, you're, you're either to believe in, in Christ, that he is God, or you go the way of the devil. There's no middle ground. I pray that we'll be grateful that you've made this option so clear for us. That it's not clouded. The choice is clear. And Father, we pray that any here this morning who's put their, yet to put their faith and trust in you would cry out to you. And I pray for us believers that we would acknowledge our need of you on a daily basis. Lord, your word is clear in Scripture. And Lord, you're a forgiving God. And no matter what the sin is, that we can come to you. And we can confess that sin. 
And because of our faith and trust in Christ, we're clothed in his righteousness. The Bible says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I pray that today you would give us a day that's filled with your blessings. That we could serve you and fellowship together. And just live out this next week for you and for your service. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.